The, the prayer that I want to say to pr uh, open us up is there on that first page that I photocopied uh, from the Collects, and this is the Collects for the third Sunday in Lent, um, which I think sort of speaks to a lot of what I've been talking about here, and especially what I'll probably get to today. And the, these uh, Collects in, in Lent in particular are really good because it's such a penitential season. I love Lent. I mean, outside of our Lenten speaker series, I've always loved Lent um, uh, because I'm such a pessimistic person. Um, but, you know, just a, you know, a season of repentance is, in my mind, great. Um, so that's where this comes from. Let us pray. Almighty God, who see us that we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves, keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. It's a really controversial statement that we have no power uh, of ourselves to help ourselves. I mean, uh, I, I, I feel like every time I've taught so far the four sections of this series, the sermon earlier at 9 a.m. has kind of sort of spoke to what I want to get at. And, and uh, if you were there at 9, maybe you'll be there at 11. Deborah talks about this sort of du jour um, idea that what you need to do is look inside of yourself, abusing the idea of the still small voice of God with a still small voice in your heart. And I was, as she was talking about it, I was thinking about, you know, we think of the, that, that place inside of us perhaps as being pure. And I was just imagining, I think it was the first Star Wars movie that, was it the first one that was created where there was this creature that was like this pit that was an animal in the sand where they would like um, hang them over and they would go down and the creature would eat them. Do you remember what that was called? And I thought, that's the human heart. What is it called? Rikor. Rikor, yeah, the, the human heart is the Rikor, basically. <laughs> but we think that it's this, uh, you know, blue crystal or something. <laughs> the human heart, uh, there's this survivor of the Holocaust, the Jewish survivor of the Holocaust, who said, if you, if you, it, it, this is a man who survived the Holocaust, you know, not a, not Nazi, but a Jewish man who was, forget his name, who, who was interred, said, if you could lick my heart, it would poison you. If you could lick my heart, it would poison you. Golly, isn't that great? Um, there's another one that I really like, I can't think of. I think it's from a heavy metal song. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, that's what I feel about the human heart, actually. If you, if you look inside of yourself, you'll find something to the extent of the sentiment of we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves. But so much of the world is trying to tell us that, you know, you've got to drum up the, the ability to do this thing. Uh, if we could just sort of... Um, hassle everybody into perfection, it all sort of work out. The other thing that's happening during this season that I quite like, we didn't, I don't think we read from it, no, we definitely did not read from it today, but we will in the evening. Um, we've had uh, readings from Galatians in the lectionary for several weeks and for a couple more weeks to come. And this is the reading today, um, if you come to the five o'clock, uh, Adam Young will be preaching from it. So this is Galatians chapter 3. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming uh, faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, 
in order that we might be justified by faith. But now, the faith has come, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or, and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And uh, so... Um, um, the uh, idea of justification uh, by faith is something that will come up today. And uh, what I want to talk to you about today is the idea of works righteousness. Now, works righteousness on its own as a phrase isn't necessarily a, um, a historic heresy. It's just a theme that often comes up in historic heresies. And if you're just joining us for the first time today, uh, we've been looking at heresies as a topic and that comes from the historic ancient church in the first few centuries. There were what was called false teachings. False opinion is what heresy meant. And the church was trying to make sense of these teachings that didn't seem right. Now, they, they felt right to our human conscience um, because they often speak to things that sound right to us. Like, just look inside of, of yourself. You know, look in your heart. Um, you know, heresies often have an element to them that sound nice and true. Um, uh, and uh, so there basically are no new heresies. There are just new things in terms of the way the culture nowadays articulates them, but often if we look <laughs> back, you'll see that the church has struggled with these things, and the church has codified confessions of faith through um, these, uh, these conflicts, these church conflicts. Our creeds, the Nicene Creed, for example, um, uh, came out of uh, discussions about the nature of God. Um, and uh, so it's not a full, it doesn't have everything you need to know about doctrine in it. It's a response to what the controversy was. Though it's a really good confession of faith when it comes to Trinitarian theology and to a certain extent the nature of Christ. But, you know, it's incomplete. And there are even words in the creeds like Trinity. Uh, uh, Wait, that's not in there. But anyway, there, there, there are ideas in, in the creeds. I'm, I'm blanking on one in particular. But anyway, there are things in the creeds that aren't in uh, Scripture per se, but they can be gleaned from Scripture and uh, made sense of so that we can have this confession of faith. Uh, and then later, fast forward to the Protestant Reformation. Last time, I talked about Luther's Heidelberg Disputation to talk about the idea of theologies of glory versus the cross. And again, that was a disputation that came out of a, a, a conflict, a church conflict. He was um, rejecting the prevailing teaching of the papal authority of Roman Catholicism, which then wouldn't have been called Roman Catholicism. It would have been called the church. You know, um, uh, There was no Protestant Reformation yet. That was ground zero, was what Martin Luther was doing. Um, and so, you know, this was... Uh, uh, for, for fear of death, he was, you know, these things, people were killed over these controversies. And then out of the Protestant Reformation came new confessions, uh, uh, Reformed Lutheran and even Anglican. Uh, in our uh, tradition, if you uh, look at the back of the Book of Common Prayer, we have what's called 30, the 39 Articles of Religion, which... Um, 
really, uh, as we see them now, are an edited version um, that you know was created over several decades. There was articles of religion that Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, created under the authority of Henry VIII that look nothing like what you see in the 39 Articles of Religion, but it was a, the beginning of that kind of work. Um, and then uh, under uh, Edward, um, there were the 42 Articles of Religion, and then uh, Bloody Mary came into power and reversed the nation from Protestantism back to Catholicism. And so not only were, were the Articles of Religion done away with in that respect, but the, the people, the authors of this thing were, were executed like Cranmer. Um, but after uh, sh after her sister became uh, rose to power and became Queen Elizabeth, um, the the country came back to Protestantism, and she actually kind of had a hand in the creation of the Thirty Nine Articles of Religion. Isn't that interesting? But really, uh, through the new Archbishop um, Matthew uh, Parker, these were sort of finalized to what we see now. Uh, we have a little bit difference in the American version because there's no sort of assent to the, the crown, um, which appears in the original 39 articles. Um, but uh, for the most part, theologically speaking, that's what we have. And their response mostly to Catholicism, but also to other controversies happening uh, with extreme um, Pro, sort of extreme versions of the Protestant Reformation, like the Anabaptists. Um, but mostly, when it comes to the, the material I want to look at with you today, it's a response to Roman Catholicism in terms of uh, um, works. And um, I've been calling this class Heresies from the Ground Up because I'm really interested in, in people um, and human nature and the human equation in these things. Even remember in the first uh, lesson that I taught, we're looking at Fitz Allison's discussion of two historic heresies which had to do with Jesus. Fitz is able to flip them on the head and say, well, what does this mean for people? So when he looks at adoptionism, which was a belief that Jesus was just a regular guy who was adopted at his baptism to become more divine, Fitz helps us see that if you flip that equation, basically that is kind of a works righteousness um, religion, believing that you can sort of merit, uh, um, you can merit your righteousness with God, just as Jesus did in his baptism, uh, becoming uh, more divine, a sort of super prophet than anybody else. And the other one uh, was docetism, which was the belief that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, that he appeared to die on the cross. He seemed to suffer, but didn't actually suffer. And then again, when Fitz flips on his head, he says, basically, the, the human version of this is escapism. So there are two kind of prevailing um, things behind a lot of heresy. One is um, a moralism, or we might say today, works righteousness, and the other is a religion of escape. And we see that nowadays uh, with a lot of the kind of thinking like, look inside of your heart, you know, for the answer. Escape all the nonsense, the chaos out there in the world, and instead just look within. Um, uh, sort of new age thinking, but not just new age or eastern mysticism, uh, consumerism. <laughs> you know, western consumerism is often escapist. 
um, we're constantly clamoring for the new best thing. You know, we're not always just hoarding stuff as much as we, we buy one thing and then are easily dissatisfied with it and discard it and get the new one. iPhone 5, 5S, iPhone 6, what's next? I don't know. You know, what is Apple going to come out with in a year? Um, that I'm going to discard the, you know, this thing is old news. I haven't even had it for two years, and it's so out of date. There are certain things that I can't do with it, and yet, um, you know, so that's kind of escapist to a certain extent because we're dissatisfied with, um, you know, why can't I just keep a stinking cell phone until it dies? <laughs> oh, there's pre planned, uh, pre-programmed obsolescence. Um, uh, I hope you're catching my drift with uh, with the the sort of prevailing winds of, of of heresy. But even the things that are often sort of escapist have an element of of works righteousness in it um, because it's often about sort of self improvement. Um, so that's why I think it's helpful to talk about these things. So know that. Uh, the 39 Articles of Religion are really, I think, super helpful. They're also a political document because they're created under the authority of the crown. Uh, it's not, it doesn't split hairs as finely as something like uh, the Heidelberg uh, Catechism or some other confessions of faith. Uh, because Elizabeth, was, as, a, as a monarch, often is trying to do is keep the peace in the country and so it has to cast a little bit wider net but she knows that her country is not under the uh, is no longer catholic roman catholic she knows that her country is protestant what does that mean how do we create the the the, the foul lines within which is orthodoxy and outside of which is heretical without um getting the point too fine that we narrow the foul lines even further, and then we're going to be burning everybody at the stake. <laughs> um, and but that makes the document kind of helpful because it um, it has a sort of distillation of basic Protestant Christianity. It's not necessarily reformed. There are elements of it that look pretty Calvinistic. There are elements of it that seem quite Lutheran. Last time I read to you the Heidelberg uh, Disputation from Martin Luther in 1518, and there was a man there named Martin Bucer who was exiled from Strasbourg, and where did he go? He went to Cambridge, where he was a Regis Professor of Divinity and had influence on none other than Archbishop Matthew Parker. So a guy who was there and converted sort of from his, he was a Dominican monk, from his sort of uh, uh, his previous thoughts of uh, the sort of typical Roman Catholic faith, was uh, convinced by Martin Luther, became a pretty Protestant leader in the church th to the extent that he was exiled to England, and then hung around the same guys who ended up codifying the 39 Articles of Religion. So you'll see that there's some language in what we read last time that's quite similar to this. So I want to go through this section that is kind of, um, if you skip to the next page, uh, Article 9 of Original Burson. Um, there's a section in the middle of the 39 Articles of Religion um, that is kind of dealing with human nature, questions of people, and how do we merit our... 
worth or righteousness or justification before God. And so you have to start with, well, who are people? What are they like? And this is the doctrine of original or birth sin. Original sin standeth not in the following of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk, but it is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit. And therefore, in every person born into the world, it deserveth God's wrath and, damn and damnation. And this infection of nature doth remain, yea, even in them that are regenerated, whereby the lust of the flesh, uh, we'll skip the whole Greek thing, which some do expound the wisdom, some sensuality, some of the affection, some the desire of the flesh, is not subject to the law of God. And although there is no condemnation for them that believe and are baptized, yet the apostle doth confess, that means Paul, that concupiscence and lust hath of itself the nature of sin. Well, what in the world's going on here? Um, uh, this is a response to uh, Roman Catholic understanding at the time, um, uh, and they refer to a man named Pelagius, and his thinking that followed him, the brand of thinking, uh, was called Pelagianism. And if you're not familiar with that, I, uh, I appended to the end a final page, which is a photocopy from a an exposition on the 39 articles, which gives a brief, brief summary of Pelagianism. I won't read that today, but basically what I want to say is that um, that we all, remember like I said, the, the, if you look at all that vision I had of the heart of the, what was the thing called, the Rancor uh, from Star Wars, uh, you know, we're, we're all um, since Adam in the fall, since Eve in the fall, um, evil uh, and you could even say we're all dead um, and uh, the the understanding is, in Roman Catholicism was that um, when you're baptized the original sin goes away and then what happens is sometimes people have actual sins so there's a difference between original sin what's inherent to me and actual sin which are the things that I perform the bad deeds that I perform and so Roman Catholic teaching called that concupiscence which uh, happens after baptism and then you just have to keep going to confession to have those actual sins forgiven over and over again and the Protestant understanding which is the biblical understanding which they're trying to communicate here is that that original sin remains after baptism um, that Christians are sinners um, as well um, and that human nature is evenly distributed not only here and now, but across time and space. Um, uh, so uh, that's that's the the starting point. Is who are people? What are we like? Um, so you can't just say things like, "Well, I think I'm a, I, I think I'm basically a good guy," <laughs> um, on, on your own. Um, uh, you, you 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 what is the uh, uh, the uh, all our good works before God are filthy rags, basically. Uh, there's nothing, you know. I mean, if if the if the source is evil or bad or problematic, anything it puts out, you know, 
uh, if this is messed up, anything that it puts out, even the things that look good to our eyes are going to have an element of evil to them. Uh, so they're not, we're never going to have inherently good works on our own. And then the next question is then, well, you know, at the beginning of the Heidelberg disputation with Luther, the main question is about righteousness. And so here too, uh, the, the question is, uh, it kind of looks like a sun. <laughs> uh, you know, well, we could say something quite similar. The, the main question uh, of all this stuff is like, if there's God and us people, how can we stand before him and and have righteousness without being totally annihilated? <laughs> That's the main question. How can we stand before God? What what gives us righteousness to stand before God? Right. Well, that's what this is getting at. And so how how can you do that on your own? With well, the next question is uh, if you believe that it has something to do with works or your own merit, then you have a you have a belief in something like a free will. And so that's what the next article gets at, which is uh, of the free will. The uh, condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith and calling upon God. Wherefore, we have no power to do good works pleasant and acceptable to God without the grace of God by Christ preventing us, that we may have a, a good will and working with us when uh, we have that good will. Um, and so... Um, the Christian paradigm of, uh, of, of humanity is that we don't have what you might call a, a free will when it comes to our righteousness before God. That given the choice, actually, uh, we don't choose God, we choose ourselves. Um, and so it's not that, you know, often when I talk about these things, when anybody talks about the stuff, they think that... Um, you know, it, 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 uh, that the, the opposite of free will uh, is no will. That's not exactly, I'm not talking about diametric opposition. I'm saying that the human has a will, it's corrupt. Like I can make a choice whether or not to pick up this pen or what clothes I want to <laughs> make in the morning, but when it comes to Standing before God, my will is not free. It's bound. I'm a slave to sin. I'm in bondage. It's corrupt because of my human nature. And so I'm not going to choose God. I'm constantly going to choose my own self-centeredness. And that's the problem. So, so who will deliver us? <laughs> you know, how, can we, how, can we, how can we have this project and stand before God and not be... Uh, annihilated in his sight because when he sees us he sees uh, evil well the next one if you flip to the next page is about justification and that's the real heart of the matter there are some really good old doctrinal words that are helpful to learn and one is justification uh, for understanding the gospel or good news about Jesus Christ we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior uh, Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is the most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort, as more largely is expressed in the homily of justification. Just a sidebar about the homily of justification. There, 
the preachers at the priests ordained at the time under Elizabeth's reign didn't they they just were so uneducated about this stuff they were ordained so they let them practice the sacraments but the, for the most part they wouldn't let them preach because they didn't know how to preach this message so they had this book of homilies that the priests had to read or lay people who were leading morning prayer had to read from the pulpit that expounded on these ideas even further I'd say even like nowadays that wouldn't that that'd probably be great to have the homily of justification read uh, versus some of the sort of pablum that we have out there. <laughs> well, justification, uh, I don't think it comes up in here, but um, another old word that's helpful for understanding this stuff is in, imputation, imputed righteousness. Remember what I said, you have God, and the question is about righteousness. I hope you all can see this. And there's a person here, that's you, me, how can we stand before God? We're justified by faith in Jesus Christ so that when God looks upon us, he does not see us in our filthy works. He sees Jesus Christ's righteousness. Uh, imputation is the idea that um, it's, uh, Jesus is accounted to you. That's what imp imputed is when something that you don't have inside of If you're a lawyer, you could probably explain this better than I can. Uh, you can impute guilt or innocence on someone. Uh, uh, I've been imputed of guilt, <laughs> things that I wasn't guilty for, haven't you? You know, um, uh, rarely am I imputed for righteousness that I don't have, but that is the gospel of Christianity. Um, we're justified, which is a legal term, in God's sight, who's the judge, because when he looks upon us, he does not see our uh, righteousness, which we don't have, but Jesus Christ and his sinlessness is given to us like a covering. Think of the Exodus, is it Exodus passage where Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, you cannot see my glory because you'll be annihilated. Because Moses, the man, can't stand before God and not be annihilated because even Moses isn't righteous enough. He says, but well, I'll tell you what I'll do. There's this rock over here with a cleft in it and I'll put you inside of it so that when I go by, my glory will not annihilate you. Jesus Christ is that rock, basically. That's what justification uh, uh, means. And so, so we're justified by that faith in Jesus' righteousness, okay? And so then uh, the next, the, these are kind of, these, this order is really helpful because often each one in the, in the mind begs a certain question that somebody's kind of asking. Well, the next question is kind of like, well, well what about well, what about works then? You know, well, if you had, you know, even Paul says this, should we, should we go on sinning? By no means. You know, I mean, it, it is the next question that people always ask. And so the next article is of good works, albeit that uh, good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment Yet they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith insomuch that they, uh, that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. Excuse me. And so what they're saying is um, um, uh, now that someone is regenerate in Christ, they're justified by faith, um, that 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 uh, that that faith is alive 
it's true and lively. That's, there, that's a very, that's an Anglican phrase that I really love that appears in a few places, a, a lively faith. Uh, um, uh, is a faith that works, you know. I mean, out of it's going to to spring forth naturally um, good works. Th- those works are not going to put away; they're not going to merit our righteousness before God. But out of them, through the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the, the Christian is going um, to have evidence of that faith. Now, don't be fruit counters in other people's lives because where a person begins in your eyes and where you are, it might be two completely different places. And so that, that true and lively faith might look like nothing other than repentance for certain people, you know, over and over again. For you, it, it might uh, to the rest of the world be more evidently known because you're just sort of a genuinely nicer person, benevolent person. But it, God, know, God knows the difference, you know what I mean? Um, but uh, the, the point is that a Christian who, who uh, is regenerate and is in this situation is uh, going to have the Holy Spirit at work in their life and have the fruits of the Spirit, okay? Um, well, then the, the, the question is, I know some people who are not Christian and are altruistic, who are benevolent, uh, shoot, I know some non-Christians who are nicer than the Christians I know. Well, what about them? You know, what about Gandhi is often the question. What about Gandhi, you know, or, uh, you know, fill in the blank, somebody who wasn't a Christian who did some really great stuff. Um, well, look at this one, uh, Article 13 of Works Before Justification. Works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of his spirit are not pleasant to God. For as much as they spring not of faith in Jesus Christ, neither do they make men meet to receive grace. Or as the school authors say, that means the scholastic medieval theologians, uh, deserve grace or congruity. Yea, rather, for that they are not done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, we doubt not, but they have the nature of sin. So even the person who's uh, 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 not a Christian is doing very kind things in the eyes of God is still coming from a sinner. Uh, and, and those things alone are not going to merit their justification. Uh, and so that sort of trumps the, the notion that came up when we talked about moralistic therapeutic deism. Remember, the moralistic side of that is uh, God wants people to be good and good people go to heaven. Uh, no, nothing about Jesus and, and, and that equation. Um, but, but that's because all people um, across the board are originally inside inherently sinners. And so even the things that look really nice and good in our sight um, are, uh, have depravity in them. That's great for you know, civil um, you know, mechanisms and things so that we can get along in this world. It's very, uh, God can be at work. Uh, through those things, uh, you know, in order to prevent chaos in our lives, but it's not in terms of an eternal perspective uh, meriting one's righteousness. And if you uh, believe otherwise, then you think that all people can be good and good people are going to go to heaven. Um, but that's just simply not the good news. The good news is, is this message here. Um, and this one... Uh, Works of uh, supererogation. 
Um, that's a that's a word you've probably never heard before. Um, voluntary works beside over and above God's commandments, which they call works of supererogation, cannot be taught without arrogancy or impiety. For by them men do declare that they do not only render unto God as much as they are bound to do, but that they do more for his sake than of bounded duty is required. Whereas Christ saith plainly, when ye have done all that is commanded of you, say we are unprofitable servants. What in the world is this about? Supererogation means after faith, there are things that you can do to merit uh, better standing before God. And this led to doctrines about things like purgatory, um, uh, indulgences was the big topic that really drove Martin Luther crazy, and that's why he pinned the 95 Theses to the wall. Indulgences were things that you could earn or purchase so that either you or relatives would spend less time in uh, purgatory. I actually got an indulgence. Uh, I did the, um, the pilgrimage across Spain. Uh, I call it El Camino de Santiago to the cathedral in Santiago de Compostela, the way of St. James. Has anybody heard of this? Yeah. I had no idea. When you get to the end, you go to this booth and they take your name and they write on it. I don't know where it is. I got to find it. It's in my mom's storage unit in California. I did, what I did was 500 miles. And they wrote in Latin on this thing. It was basically a certificate. It was basically an indulgence. You could still, you could still. No, I just, you know, when I guess when you see Saint Peter, you can, you can bring it. Um, I think it's more like a novelty these days. But back in the day, that that that's where that pilgrimage got its start. I mean, people could do things like that. Um, after the fact of becoming a Christian to earn greater and greater standing before God. Now, if you know everything that I just taught so far and read here, you realize, like, that's bogus, right? Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't hang on us and what we do. Anything that comes after our faith it, of a true and li uh, lively faith are the fruits of the Spirit doing good works in, in our lives, but they're not... Um, something that in, uh, is going to help us have better standing before God. It hinges on Jesus Christ alone, which is what the next thing says. Article 15. Uh, Christ alone without sin. Christ in the truth of our nature was made like unto us in all things, sin only except, from which he was clearly void, both in his flesh and in his spirit. He came to be the lamb without spot, who by sacrifice of himself once made, should take away the sins of the world. And sin, as St. John saith, was not in him. But all we, the rest, although baptized and born again in Christ, yet offend in many things. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Um, and so it's in uh, Jesus Christ alone. There's more I can read. There's the article there about sin after baptism. Uh, you know, that's getting again at the idea of not only original sin, but actual sins occur after baptism. If you skip to the next page, the lengthiest doctrine in the 39 articles is one of predestination or election. It's actually for a, uh, uh, for a wrestling with predestination, quite pithy. <laughs> um, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, it's basically saying the Church of England has a doctrine of predestination. Again, but we're not going to split hairs about what it means exactly. But one thing that's nice about this doctrine of predestination there, it says, is for the believer. 
Um, for the, it's of great comfort for the believer to read this, but if you give it to a, a non-regenerate person, it's going to throw them off the rails. Uh, and you could probably understand understand that. Well, um, that is uh, works righteousness, which um, you know we all have inside of us uh, uh, inherent sort of desire for. And what I've taught you uh, today out of the articles um, is is not what most people would want to believe. Um, it's not, in fact, what I find most Christians seem to be saying. Um, yet, when I read the Bible and when I learn more historic theology, and I'm glad to see in our tradition, there's a pretty decent, meaty grappling with this. And what is the closest thing that we have to a denominational confession of faith? Although the Episcopal Church does not recognize this as a confession of faith in the way that um, other denominations have one. For example, I didn't have to sign an oath of conformity to this, um, but I believe it. Uh, and a place like the Advent um, stands uh, at the feet of something like the 39 Articles. Any uh, questions, pushbacks? Yeah. In evangelical conservative circles, there are certain people who espouse a belief in the second judgment Yeah, it kind of does, you know, and I mean, that's why this stuff is tough, because if you go to most places, that's kind of what people are saying, and it's, uh, I mean, you can, you, can, you can read the Bible out of context and, and get, you know, you, could, you can decontextualize some verses and give you that meaning, but listen, when you go to the pearly gates, and, um, and you, when you go to heaven, you know, and you go knock on the, the, the gate, and St. Peter lets you in, you're going to stand before God, don't think that what you need to do in this situation is sort of count up all the great things you've done in life. Instead, get on your knees and say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. <laughs> I am not worthy, but He is. What have I done? Absolutely nothing. Uh, I have faith in His righteousness alone. Uh, uh, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> you know, remember uh, Wayne and Garth? Uh, we're not worthy. <laughs> not, you know, I mean, I've done some things that have been really kind, but, I, you know, it pales in comparison to this situation here. I, that's my answer. Uh, yeah. Um, this whole concept, I think a lot of people who don't believe this think it's a really negative way to look at Right. And that it's sad. I've, I've had this yes. discussion with a friend about her husbands lately. It's kind of <laughs> ongoing. And she Your is husband's so pessimistic. <laughs> so she's so angry at her husband for this relatively minor like insensitivity he showed her a few years ago. And, and she thinks that, and then I was like, but you don't understand. Like, I married a sinner and so did my husband. And yeah. she thinks that's very sad. Totally. We're all good people inside, except her husband's a terrible person. And, uh, and she said, so we're, we're discussing this, like, idea of, like, um, the human heart being depraved or, like, good in the, you know. And, and she said, you can't, I'm holding my eight-month-old at this time. She said, you cannot look at your baby Paul and say that he is a bad person in his heart. And I said, 
every day I look at him and think, you're going to be such a jerk to me. Like one day, every day. And she thought that was such a sad way to look at life. And I was like, Mr. C, you don't understand. It's a, it's a huge burden. Once you realize this, it is yeah. a freeing thing in your marriage and with your relationship with your children. Totally. It's so, it's, it's reverse. Of, you know, it's just, it's this huge burden. Yeah, my wife and me too. I would say it this way. I am someone who, upon whom my wife needs to have compassion. And, you know, and, and the inverse is true. I need compassion more than I need judgment from her. Because, like, I'm going to continue to be a sinner. And my kids, too. Uh, I have so much more to say. It's the end of this series. I'll teach more and more and more on this stuff as long as I'm here. You know, but the next class I'm teaching is on um, the church is the only institution that's made for its non-members. Uh, which is outside of this series, but somehow related. Anyway, if you want to come to that, I think it's probably in this room next week. But the last thing I want to say about uh, what you just said, Sarah, is um, that uh, one of the things that I feel like I'm constantly pushing up against is sentimentalism. That a lot of bad theology is related to sentimentalism. And the sentimentalist hallmarky card point of view says that baby's precious and innocent and pure uh, and it might sound sad and pessimistic to be like well that baby is just as much of an original sinner as I am but it's it's helpful and much more hopeful if, if I don't know if anybody still has that handout I gave you last time from Gerhard Ferdi he says something quite similar at the end of his paragraph when he's talking about the theology of glory he says that a, a lot of theologies of glory end up reducing themselves into maudlin sentimentality but a theology of the cross, which is this, provides the ultimate hope. Because it doesn't depend on us and our sentimentalism. It depends on Jesus Christ alone. The one who said, come all ye that are heavy, uh, burdened and heavy laden, and I will refresh you. I will refresh you. Um, and those are great words of comfort. Uh, but for the sentimentalist, it just looks like pessimistic. Uh, half-empty kind of thinking. But remember, and this is my final word, I believe that the glass isn't half-empty. It's broken and shattered on the ground, and the water is all over the place. Thanks be to God. <laughs>